Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We're not really any closer to knowing how Brexit's going to be resolved, but we are quite a lot closer to the voters getting a say. And we're going to try and work out what that might mean. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. With me today are Catherine Bernard, lawyer, Chris Bickerton. <laughs> I didn't know lawyers laugh when you say lawyer. Chris it's Bickerton. like the pejorative way you say lawyer, that's what it is. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> with me today are Catherine Bernard, lawyer, Chris Bickerton, political scientist, Helen Thompson, political economist. So we're quite well covered. So there are local elections tomorrow. We're recording this, as always, on a Wednesday. I don't think we can speculate about those. And it's almost too complicated to extrapolate from local election results a verdict on Brexit. But there are potentially European elections coming up. And there are some really big questions, both about what those elections mean for Brexit, but also what they might mean for people's sense of how democracy works in this country. So the head of the Electoral Commission issued a pretty stinging rebuke to the government effectively, and more broadly, I think you might say, we don't like this phrase, to the political class, which is you're playing dangerous games with people's faith or confidence in democracy by essentially telling them to vote in elections that you are also telling them you don't want to hold and don't really mean anything. So if we start with the really big question... Catherine, start with a lawyer. Is that a plausible claim that actually these elections might, regardless of what they might mean for Brexit, damage democracy? You could make that claim. You could also make the counterclaim that actually it's rather good for democracy because in the past, European elections have always been regarded something of a joke and people haven't taken them seriously. The turnout's been very low. In fact, of course, it's worth bearing in mind that these may be the first elections that a lot of people who couldn't vote in 2016 because they were too young are actually able to vote in. And so for them, it's their first chance to get a taste of democracy in action. Now, of course, if it leads to the election of MEPs who effectively don't sit, then, of course, that does give them a kick in the teeth. But at least it means that they can get out there and have their say. I guess the Electoral Commission view of this is it's a really bad first taste of democracy. So, I mean, I'm sure most people can remember the first time you vote, particularly when it's a general election, even though no individual vote counts. It's something that doesn't count for much. There's something really exciting about it. And it's, in a way, it's hard to imagine what it would feel like your first vote to be in something like this, where... If anything, it is just a signalling exercise. But in fact, it signals more than perhaps in even a general election where one vote in 70-odd thousand in your constituency. Because actually, it gives them a chance to have essentially a free vote. It will be sending a message, even if your particular vote doesn't change the dial, it will be part of a cumulative process that says actually, this is what I think, and I'm going to go for the Brexit party or Change UK or whichever one it is, because it will inevitably become some sort of de facto second referendum. I think that it cuts both ways, and I can see exactly what the Electoral Commission is fearful about, because I think there is something that sometimes goes, you know, like beyond conscious understanding about what the power of voting 
is and you are messing around with it and having elections that are going to lead potentially to no consequences whatsoever in terms of the actual thing that's supposed to be at stake. I think it would have been worse if there'd been a concerted campaign around Leave voters or part of the Leave vote anyway, boycotting the elections. The fact that the Brexit party wants to contest them and indeed has got a reasonable prospect of doing rather well in them. Potentially, quote unquote, winning. Yeah. It actually is, whatever else one thinks about it, is an outlet for that issue. I think there's another question that actually does concern me somewhat though, and that is is that it's obvious that an interpretation will immediately be put on what these results mean for Brexit and indeed the possibility of a second referendum. But these elections don't take place on the same franchise as what the second referendum would take place on, assuming from the moment that the second referendum has to be on exactly the same franchise as the previous one because they involve European Union citizens and they are not going to be involved in a second referendum unless something radically changes. I do think that has awkward implications because it could look that the support for a second referendum and stop Brexit is stronger than it would actually manifest itself in such a referendum. I think the holding of the European elections are simply a consequence of not having terminated or finalised the UK's exit from the European Union. No more but no less. And there's no way around it. If you're still a member state, you hold the European elections. So for those who sort of had various positions on Brexit, and especially those who refused to back the withdrawal agreement, this is just the way things work when you when you hold up the process. I don't think they pose you know problems for democracy in general. They have some sense of throwing up sort of a certain amount of uncertainty, which I think is positive. The challenge to the main parties is very, very clear. The sense of the fragility of the sort of traditional parties is manifest. I think that's a good thing. I think we have to take responsibility for the elections as being simply a consequence of the UK remaining a member state of the EU. But in a way, that then is another of these clashes between a kind of process or legalistic conception of politics, they have to happen. It is just a consequence of the fact that we fail to do this. These are the rules. And political politics, because we have a government that clearly is desperate for them not to happen. It's very, very, and we'll come on to the damage this might do to the Conservative Party and its prospects going forward, but it's very damaging for a government to seem to be trapped by a legalistic process when all of its political will is geared towards preventing them from happening. But it's not trapped by law. It's trapped by the impasse around Brexit that's taking place within the UK's political institutions. Well, it's trapped by, isn't it trapped by European electoral law? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, I, I come clean here. I argued with my um, opposite number at Oxford that we could even avoid going down the route of having European Parliament elections by using Article 50 as a legal basis to say that we extend the existing mandate of the current MEPs. Now, we were dumped on from a great height about this, and the argument was probably more of a political argument. I mean, it was dressed up as constitutional and democratic and so forth and the pragmatic argument that people would challenge not being able to have new elections but you could say it was also part of the politics around Brexit that the EU were using the 
requirement to have European Parliament elections as a, a stick to beat the UK with to try and get them to agree to the withdrawal agreement and get it through Parliament by the 22nd of May. So on that account, whose bluff was called? <laughs> so absolutely. And so in fact, it, the bluff was called and we're heading towards having European Parliament elections. And there were, had been quite serious discussions elsewhere about whether you could use Article 50 as a basis to extend the mandate of the existing MEPs. But there's also a paradox too, that now we're going through down the route of having European Parliament elections, in fact, we can avoid leaving for another five years. If we'd gone down my route of saying we just extend them for a few months till October, then we would have absolutely had to have been gone by October time before any serious decisions were being taken by the European Parliament. On your account that in some ways, particularly for maybe first-time voters and others, and Chris, you're saying something similar, you know, this is democracy, it is unpredictable, one should always be wary about saying these elections are dangerous because you know, elections are dangerous for politicians because they might lose them. And there is another scenario here, which is, I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen, but and it seems unlikely, but that something is agreed coming out of these talks or with Parliament that means that right at the last minute, these elections don't happen. Now, that's also potentially, actually, for the young people or for others who, for whom these elections had become a vehicle for expressing something, to tempt people right up to the edge and then pull it off, is that worse? I think it's worse. I think what you've got at the moment is a momentum's building towards the European Parliament elections and certain amount of excitement building. I mean, what's going to happen in the Southwest? You've got, you know, the showdown between Anne Widdicombe and Rachel uh, Johnson. Sort of minor celebrity candidates. <laughs> but you can see that the parties are in the process of choosing candidates. And the Labour Party yesterday had a serious political row, I mean, something maybe even more than a row, about the position they were going to take in these elections. I'm very sceptical about how any agreement between the two parties would get through the House of Commons, but leaving that aside, it would be the two main parties essentially pulling the plug on these insurgent parties, challenging them, because they alone are the ones who can determine whether the elections take place. And given how much discontent there is for different reasons with the two main parties, I think that would have political repercussions if we go down that road. But I think that Chris is right in saying is is that the fundamental context in which this is happening is the impasse about the UK's attempt to leave the European Union. And we've got to, in this context, expect quite strange and problematic things now to happen. There, There aren't any good ways forward. In fact, there are only some pretty bad ways forward. I think it would be wrong to think that they have some sort of standalone democratic legitimacy in and of themselves. They are only being held because we've not yet left the European Mm -hmm. Union. If we were prior to the elections to leave the European Union, then they would end. And I don't think that would be in some way sort of illegitimate because a certain momentum had begun. It would be wrong to invest in them the kind of energy and faith that presumed the UK was going to continue as a member state in the future and had never left. And there is, I think, on the sort of side of the pro-Europeans, this idea that the European elections are really significant, really important, and almost you kind of forget that actually we are still meant to be leaving. They're only being held because we haven't yet left. But it's not that we can suddenly pretend that we've never left and these are the good old European elections as in the past and they're just a bit more meaningful than they were. But clearly the the pro-Europeans, pro-EU people I should say, staying in the EU, think that the European Parliament elections are the means to stop us leaving the European Union. Whether they're right or wrong about that doesn't really matter. That is what they think is at stake. Not the means, but a possible part of the package of means. Well, I think that the, the political case would be that if a party that was clearly committed to remain won, 
Now, I think given what happened yesterday with the Labour Party, that's difficult to imagine that that would be something that would create more political support than there is now, or stronger political conditions, that would be a better way of putting it, for actually stopping Brexit. So just one more question about this sort of faith in democracy thing. It's something I've talked about a lot on this podcast, and I think it's easy to overstate it. It's quite easy to bandy around crisis of democracy talk and crisis of legitimacy talk. Democracy is a pretty robust thing. There is polling today, the Pew Research Organisation does annual polling around the world, and it's basically people's faith in democracy is the question. And again, these surveys can be read lots of different ways. They're quite soft in some ways, the kind of questions they ask, do you have a lot, some, a little? But there's been a really dramatic shift in the last year in the number of people who are expressing either very little or not much confidence in democracy. So the biggest shift is in Germany and India, the two places where we're talking about a 20% shift over the last year. But everywhere the dial has moved, what you might call sceptically or negatively. The UK was already quite a long way along that dial and we're moving. So there is a wider context here. And again, this may be wildly overstating it, but is there any damage more broadly to European democracy by us holding, you know, these elections really matter in lots and lots of countries. Are we devaluing them by having a kind of empty version of the thing that's consequential elsewhere? I, I think at a very practical level we are devaluing them because do remember that the 73 seats that the UK has in the European Parliament, a number of them were being divided up across other member states. So some states, like Spain, were going to get an extra five seats. And our decision, or more to the point, lack of decision over giving effect to the withdrawal agreement, means that we're having these elections. And it puts those countries in a very difficult position, because what's going to happen to their extra five or one or two seats? I mean, the spread across, I think it's 14 countries, you know, it is a handful of seats in each country. But what do they do? do and, they... and is it right, there might be some people who are sort of elected in limbo, exactly, ready to right. step in, who knows when? Who or knows never. When? That would be a really grim and job. And, you know, you know, what do you do in the intervening X years? Gardening leave. <laughs> <laughs> do you get paid? I mean, you know, there's all sorts of practical issues. But also, how do those countries manage a process that we pull the plug on the 22nd of May to give effect to all of those possible contingencies? It's making the actual operation, the levers of managing democracy really difficult. On the one hand, yes, I, I take that about these allocated seats. But, um, you know, in the bigger sort of picture, I just think, when have we really talked about European elections or cared that much about European elections? You know, since direct election took place, the European Parliament at the end of the 1970s, the turnout's been you know, steadily declining. These have been very kind of curious democratic practices for the European Parliament. Its legitimacy has always been put in question. This time round, within the UK context, it's remarkable that these European elections become invested with so much significance at a time where the UK has decided to leave. But nevertheless, they are clear channels for democratic expression. Across Europe, I see sort of similar dynamics. Loads of things are going on. Lots of sort of parties are mobilising. New groups are emerging. Some of them are evidently Eurosceptic, but none of them want to, to leave the EU. There's Stuff is happening around these European parliamentary elections that are genuinely interesting. Uh, and so give or take the odd reallocation of seats. If I was a real believer and defender of the European Parliament and not too sort of concerned about maintaining the status quo somehow, sort of protecting it from the wider currents of European politics, I would be cheering it on. I think the other thing is that although in pretty much every member state there's been a tendency to have European Parliament elections turn on national matters, I think we have been a 
shall we say, a very strong version of this phenomenon. And if you go back to like the last ones in, in 2014, in quite a number of member states, they had a, a quite serious debate about the issue of who was going to be the next president of the commission because it was set up that what was called the Spitzen candidate that was nominated by each of the main factions in the groupings, I should say, in the European Parliament. Whichever grouping got the largest number of seats in the European Parliament, they were going to get to nominate, effectively, um, the president. We had... No debate whatsoever. I mean, I don't think hardly any voters in this country in 2014 were even aware of this until after it happened. Even though the Labour Party was in a grouping that had nominated one of the candidates, one of the two top candidates. And when it was all over, Cameron went and said, we're not absolutely not accepting, you know, John claude Juncker as president of the commission and tried to veto that, thought he had Merkel on side. He didn't have Merkel on side because Merkel was, was constrained by what had been said in Germany during the European parliamentary elections. And I think he ended up only with Orban supporting him on that. So we have got, should we say, a considerable history of throwing spanners in the works in terms of our attitude towards European Parliament elections. And that is because we have had a fraught relationship with the European Union ever since we joined it, or in its European community form before that. To use that old language, we've been an awkward partner and it manifests itself over and over again in different ways. I think if the European parliamentary elections are genuine moments of democratic consultation, then they should reflect what is happening in Europe at the time. And if something is happening that's dramatic, disruptive, then those elections will express that. I remember 2009 when, in the aftermath of the Irish votes around the Lisbon Treaty, you had quite a lot of mobilisation around the democratic consequences of rejecting a treaty and then having to vote on it again. And that started to throw up sort of ideas of pan-European groupings, putting candidates across all the member states, contesting, you know, and that was, you know, that gave some life to the European parliamentary elections. And I think the, the big challenge always with democratic legitimacy questions is democracy working badly looks really like democracy working well and vice versa. And I think Anger, frustration, disengagement, and so on, surprises, people really venting against the system is both it working well and it working badly at the same time. And therefore pulling the plug on the 22nd of May I think will be really damaging. Because That's worse. Not least because it means that the Brexit Party and Change UK will both cry betrayal, they will say it's cowardice on the part of the main parties, the two main parties who already held in pretty low regard. And it's, it's not just... It's not just condemnation of the two main parties, but it's actually faith in the system and in leadership and so forth. So then to bring it back again to UK politics, because the other question here is the last general election seemed to produce this artificial but striking result that we thought we had this fractured party landscape and then it reverted back. It kind of sprung back to a two-party system, a kind of 1970s-style Labour Conservative, both getting over 40% of the vote. And now, because of Brexit and then because of the, the new electoral tests that are coming up, the fracturing is, is greater than anything that we've seen before. So we've now got you know, the leading parties, whoever it is, whether it's Labour or the Brexit Party, for these European elections are polling under 30%. So you can come first, as, as UKIP did actually last time. But you've got many more parties. And there is this question about what this might mean going forward for British politics, for a general election and so on. So people will try and read something into this, where are people on Remain Leave? But there's also a question, where are they on two-party versus multi-party politics? Previous European elections, the Greens did very well in the past, UKIP and so on, and then they fall right back or fall back at general elections. Do you think this might be different? 
Yeah, I do. I think it could be different because I, th- I think that we overestimate how much we've ever had a two-party system. And that actually the periods, if you look at, you know, like UK history where you have two parties, clear two-party politics are quite rare. The first is between 1832 and 1870 and then between 1945 and 1970. So you need a, a stable United Kingdom in terms of it being a multinational state in order for that to have essentially two-party dynamics. I agree that the 30s is a complication to leave out for the moment. So in 1870, it breaks down over the Irish question. You get an Irish party committed to home rule in principle anyway, taking seats at Westminster. By 1892, Conservatives and Liberals are both wiped out in Ireland. And then in 1974, you get the rise of not only the Ulster Unionist Party in Northern Ireland, but the SDLP plus Scottish Nationalists applied Cymru. And then even if you go into the period that looks like two parties in the 80s, by the time you get to 1987, you haven't got two-party politics in Scotland because the Conservatives are in such a dire state. By the time you get to 92, you haven't got it in Wales. So I think that even if you left Brexit out of it, we are in a position where the multinational state of the United Kingdom is fraught, so we, we can't expect two-party politics. And then you interject into that the fragmentation of Conservative and Labour Party in relation to the Brexit question. But there was a view that the lesson of the 2017 election was that Brexit itself had reintroduced this kind of UK-wide politics. After all, the the fact that Labour and the Conservatives were both winning seats in Scotland and so on, the Conservatives doing well in Wales. Um, well, they started in 2015, but continued to. That's an illusion, is it? Because people were really strongly saying, including many supporters of Brexit, who said what Brexit will do will be to restore the integrity of the UK. Well, it hasn't. Well, I think that you have to distinguish there between Scotland and Northern Ireland. In Scotland, it did have some unifying effect in that it restored the Conservative Party, not to anywhere like the position it had once held, but it you know it started winning a, a sort of respectable number of seats at least. And the Labour Party too. They'd both in, been in white Scotland. Previously. Yeah, the Labour performance was less good in relative terms than the Conservatives, but it didn't change anything in Northern Ireland. And as a consequence, we ended up with a, a minority Conservative government you know, that is dependent on the support of a Northern Irish party. I think we, we sometimes take the 2017 election perhaps as a sort of um, a confirmation of a trend that I think really was being challenged, the kind of two-party system, and that it was reinforcing it, but maybe it was more of an aberration than anything else. And I'm struck, if you go back to earlier elections before 2017, I was recently reading... Um, Andrew Rawnsley's book on New Labour the, uh, where, where he covers the 2010 election and just this sense of the appetite for considering the emergence of a, a new party, a third party that would really be important, the kind of the Clegg factor I remember going through that election and I'd forgotten how powerful it was And there were polls where they all three parties dropped to 30% didn't turn out that way but there was a point where it looked more like a European election kind of polling landscape and just the appetite for it, I think. Um, so I think there's a kind of a two-party system that's kind of hobbling along, almost waiting for something to happen that could really finally shake it up. And I think the the effect of Brexit has been to shake up the parties in quite a fundamental way. I mean, it's forced them often to consider whether their allegiance or their attitudes towards Europe are more important than the continued existence of the party itself. And these are questions where I think neither of the parties have really resolved. I mean, it's possible that the Conservatives can really be divided or certainly the British right as a whole can be divided the Labour Party has to face 
up uh, to the idea of whether it wants to try and maintain itself as a single party or not, depending on it, the position it finally takes on, on the European Union. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We still have the fact of first-past-the-post Westminster politics, which is the great disciplining device here, and it's the thing that when we get these kind of, like in 2010, explosions of enthusiasm about the thought that we might be entering a new phase of politics, and then the system locks in, and parties that even poll 25% turn out they don't get that many seats, as happened with the SDP. That might be one of the advantages, of course, of having European Parliament elections, that we'll start to learn about the de Hunt system, and uh, you know we will be educated in different methods of voting and different ways of doing things. I mean, we won't change, nothing's going to change before the next general election, presumably not the one after that. And there are, again, have to be careful not this isn't about the legitimacy of democracy but there are scenarios where for instance the Labour Party could poll in the low 30s I mean it's happened in the past Tony Blair did it and end up with a majority in parliament because the landscape is so fractured that under first past the post you do get these surprising and anomalous results I mean you could get a Corbyn premiership with a majority in parliament and we know under the British system that gives you real power but on a pretty small share of the vote so it's not like a European thing where Yes, he gets to be prime minister because he won the election, but he has to then form a coalition. The right vote could fracture as the left vote fractured in the 80s. And what we also know is that at the moment, identity is far more associated around Leave-Remain split rather than the Labour-Tory divide. And so if that's the case, you may well find that if ultimately Tories become proxy for Leave and Labour becomes proxy for Remain, despite their extraordinary ambiguity over their position on the EU, then you actually may well end up in a position of, of finding you have a, a Corbyn government. But I think the crucial issue in a way is, is has to be like what is actually going to happen about the UK's EU membership? Because what is happening to the Conservative Party at the moment is, is that the Brexit Party has emerged in a more Eurosceptic space than the one that it can presently occupy. But there are plenty within the Conservative Party who do not want the Conservative Party to be occupying the place that it is at the moment under Theresa May's leadership. And it's not that Theresa May's leadership is not going to last much longer. So at a certain point, whether Britain in the UK leaves the European Union or not, is the Conservative Party is going to have a, an alternative leader who certainly will be a lever of one kind or another or at least will have accepted leave even if they weren't originally a lever so they are going to recapture the space at least are you confident of that recapture the space occupied by the brexit, brexit party. party can they get everybody back probably not but i think that it is a transitory phenomenon the brexit party now they may well lose then the remain tory voters to Change, change UK. UK. Change UK is more effective than it has hitherto been. Or to the Liberal Democrats, to, who yeah. will also have a new leader. Yeah, possibly. But I think it's difficult to see how the Conservative Party is permanently conceding all that leave space mm. to the Brexit 
um, party. And then on the Labour side is, is what we're seeing thus far is this ability to hold together a coalition of Remain and Leave voters is actually working. Now, you can say that at a certain point it's going to fall apart for them, but people have been saying that for a long time. In order for it to fall apart for them, if they stay with the position which they are um, at the moment, large numbers of those Remain Labour voters have actually got to vote for another party under a first-past-the-post voting system at a general election that doesn't have any prospect of winning power by itself. And so far, those voters have not shown much willingness to do that. Uh, I think your your point about the occupation of the Leave space and the Conservative Party, I think, is absolutely right. And I think... I think it's also got implications for Brexit because it's likely that the next leader will be either a leaver because they were advocated the leave cause in the in the referendum or they've become a convert. Like Jeremy Hunt. Like Jeremy Hunt. And we know converts can be even more forcible than, 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 than the original leavers. And that, I think, means that there is a reasonable chance that we will crash out of the European Union without a deal on the 31st of October because it's really very difficult to try and get the withdrawal agreement through. We've seen it been tested three times. Theresa May might give it a further go in the next couple of weeks, possibly with some pledge on the customs union in order to try and get Labour MPs on board. But for every Labour MP she gets on board, she may well lose a uh, Conservative. So it's not clear that the withdrawal agreement will go through. And there's, it's very difficult to see what the alternatives are apart from crashing out without a deal on Thursday. Particularly when you throw in Macron's position in relation exactly. to this as well and um, whether he's really willing to swallow. Now, you could say that he was pushed down last time for the position that he was taking. That, that is true, but I, I don't think he's alone in thinking that there are real, real problems for the EU in, in the UK's membership lasting beyond the 31st of October. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at what was agreed on the 10th of April, that was the last time that the European Council met and gave us the actually permutations of extension. Because remember, there is, of course, a possibility we might leave on the 1st of June without a deal if we don't have European Parliament elections. Now, I think that's extremely unlikely because President Trump's coming that same week. And I suspect they don't really... God bless them. <laughs> they might not really want to have us crashing out of the EU the same week as the President of the United States coming. So I think most... No, on Chris's principle, it would be lively, and that's democracy <laughs> in action. <laughs> yep, that would certainly be lively. But So I think it's more likely we'll go to the 31st of October. And there is a sort of assumption that we've had two extensions, so we'll get a third and it will be sort of... There'll be a bit of sound and fury, but we'll get an extension. It's not clear to me for the reason that you gave about Macron. So- I want to come back to the Conservative Party, but since we're now back on this, just because we've I've asked this question before, but it's really interesting what you say. So a new Conservative government with a new Prime Minister and so on, but the same Parliament. So it, it doesn't look like, I mean, still you could, a general election could spring up from nowhere, but say it doesn't happen. But this Parliament then will revoke. I asked this question bluntly a couple of weeks ago, because this is the one that really I feel... I didn't know the answer to, but if it does come down to a choice of no deal or revoke, this Parliament revokes Article 50, doesn't it? So I think, I mean, Catherine is right. I think um, the most likely outcome, I think, is the European elections are held. There's probably some change at the top of the Conservative Party. Somebody who's a more committed lever takes the reins. However, is entirely bound by the negotiations as they've been held and has no wiggle room for renegotiating anything, so we're stuck with the withdrawal agreement. That doesn't get through Parliament. 
So we might as well just fast forward. Uh, you know, you start to get into September, nothing really happens in the summer anyway. So you get through into September, then we're already talking about the end of October deadline. So let's fast forward all the way to that. What then happens? Assuming that nothing has changed, but you have a slightly more fiery sort of lever as, a, as Prime Minister. But that's it, under all the same constraints with exactly the same Parliament. I think, yes, David, you're absolutely right. It's back to the same question. Do you exit without a deal? Do you go and ask for another extension to the European Union? Assuming they then say no, you're faced with a choice about whether you leave without a deal or you revoke. Um, Macron had an absolute enormous row with Merkel last time round. There's no doubt about it. You know, rumours are that she really kind of went at him saying that his position was just not tenable this time. But I think it hasn't changed and more... EU member states are coming around to the idea that we just can't keep extending. I think Germany itself is coming around to that idea. So I think the end of October starts to take on this appearance of the end of the road for the UK. Now the question is... it might No be, deal or revoke. Yeah. Well, it might be that the, the UK can only leave by being pushed out by the European Union. That would be sort of uh, entirely logical in my view. But I do think that the the response then would be something along the lines of trying to wangle in a revoke by pretending that it's a revoke to then go back and think again in a more fundamental way or something yeah, like I mean, that. Could, so Whiteman doesn't allow that. Yeah. I know, but it, the, 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 you can say different things, though. I think the, the official line is if you revoke, it is definitive. You, there's no revoking to think again. You revoke and that's it, it's over. But the messages sort of coming out to try and soften the decision by Parliament to revoke Article 50 would be along the lines of we need to really go back and think about this thing in a, uh, in a moment. I think it's hard to get to the point where it's a straight revoke no deal for Parliament in the context when it's interactive with the position that the EU takes. But if it's absolutely clear that the EU doesn't really want the UK in, then I think that straightforwardly Parliament revoking Article 50 is not clear that that can happen. I mean... But the EU can't stop the UK from revoking. Well, can it? I mean... No, uh, well, that's what, that's where Whiteman is significant. So yeah. Whiteman's the decision of the Court of Justice yeah. from before Christmas. And Whiteman says that as long as we make it an unconditional, unambiguous statement that we are revoking Article 50, we do it in accordance with our own constitutional requirements, which is a, at a minimum would require an Act of Parliament, then we can revoke and we stay members on exactly the same terms as we are at the moment. Now, the interesting question and what the Court doesn't tackle is, of course, one Parliament can't find its successor. So although it should be unconditional and unambiguous, so it's to stop that sort of wiggle room window dressing to say, well, we'll revoke and then we'll have a further think. Of course, there is nothing to stop a general election with a new leader of the Conservative Party coming in to say there's been a revocation and then we're going to trigger Article 50 again and the EU can't stop us. Now, the interesting question is what Pascal Lamy has been talking about this week and that is a question of sequencing. And this takes us way back to April 2017. The sequencing problem, which was that the EU laid down the sequence, which is you do the divorce, you sort out citizens' rights, Northern Ireland and the money, and once you've left, we'll start negotiating over the future deal, of course put us in an incredibly weak position. Now, Pascal Lamy is saying, look, this is absolutely queered the pitch for trying to do anything more sensible or maybe what we should be doing which we probably should have argued much more forcibly for in 2017 is that we try and say we negotiate on the divorce 
but the divorce doesn't kick in until the future deal is ready to go because where I think the politics is deeply unstable because if the withdrawal agreement were to come into force, just think about the timing, we go into transition. Transition is meant to expire at the end of 2020, but of course that won't be long enough to negotiate the future deal. So by July of 2020, so just over a year's time, we will have to ask for an extension of the transition, which will take us to the end of 2022, assuming it's granted. And even that won't be long enough to negotiate the future deal. So that's when the backstop kicks in. And the moment the backstop kicks in, the politics become deeply unstable. And of course, it means that we stay in a customs union of some sort, but services gets no preferential treatment. So it's back on the GATS terms, which is deeply disadvantageous to the UK economy. And that's when things get really messy. And on that time frame, there is no avoiding an election because this parliament expires at that point. I heard Pascal Lamy on, on the radio and I just thought it's... He didn't quite phrase it the way that you did, Catherine. You were more generous than him. He said, the Brits have never told us what they wanted to do afterwards. We should have had this discussion earlier. You know, we never knew what sort of future relationship they wanted. The demand for sequencing was a demand from the European Union that shut off any possibility for negotiations about future relations. And I remember that argument very well. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit rich to go back and say, oh, well, now we need to know more about the future relationship. It would be nice to have had, had that discussion had it been possible, but it simply wasn't possible um, uh, under the rules laid out by the For European people who haven't seen it, it's, it's often headlined as epic eye roll. Pascal Lamy's eye roll when Ian Duncan Smith was talking about uh, the Irish border is it's a, it's a treat for fans of eye rolls. <laughs> I, I, see, I think that the thing that, I mean, there clearly is the reasons that Catherine said you know, like a set of legal and constitutional issues that are in play in relation to EU law and in relation to the UK's constitutional um, system. But the one thing that does seem to have changed, and I think that um, Macron's fight with Merkel is, you know, indicative of this, is is that the relationship with the United Kingdom has emerged now as a geopolitical, to call it that language, question for the European Union in a way in which it wasn't. You know, the EU's approach to the negotiations about the withdrawal agreement has been partly as a result of the sequencing simply to say we're not talking about the future we're just going to sort out these things we're going to add the Irish question into that that will make things complicated for the UK let's see how things fall out from that which allowed the possibility of the UK essentially retreating from the position that it had been um, in but the reason why Merkel and Macron are fighting is is because they don't actually agree about the fundamental question about whether it makes sense from the point of view of the EU to have the UK in the European Union. That question can't be put back in the box now. It is part of European Union politics and our politics has got to interact with it in some way, regardless in some sense of like what the the legal positions that have been established are. I mean, the concern is that having the UK as a reluctant member is very damaging for the EU. And there was thought about in April, on the 10th of April, whether some sort of sanction needs to be put in place if the UK doesn't cooperate with the EU, doesn't behave well. And in fact, what you see in the Council conclusion, European Council conclusions, is it just says the UK has got to respect the duty of sincere cooperation, which, of course, it would be doing anyway under Article 4.3 of the Treaty on European Union. So you don't have the sanctions. And it is worth bearing in mind that day-to-day business with the EU is still going on and the UK is cooperating. We're not hearing stories of the UK putting large spanners in the works over directives that will affect the UK even once we've left. So, for example, there's a directive called the Directive on Predictable and Transparent Working Conditions. It's a directive essentially on the gig economy. 
actually it's something that rather coincides with government priorities and the UK has been extremely cooperative on that. You don't hear that story. And so it is worth bearing in mind that for all the coverage of Jacob Riggs Smog's remarks about we should disrupt from within, we are not doing that at the moment. The unity of the EU27 thus far is beginning to come apart on the fundamental question about whether the EU wants the UK to remain or not. And from what I heard, what Macron was told by Merkel is that she said, after his argument, she said, you're not being rational. And he went absolutely nuts. You Um, don't say that to a French... Well, especially to Macron. Um, But I think this idea of the kind of the emotional arguments versus a rational, this stuff is beginning to emerge within the European Council. So there's one last question we kind of got dragged uh, back into, which was really interesting, back into the weeds. But I was about to ask a last question about UK politics and the European elections and actually current polling. So Helen, I think I think we broadly agreed, you know, the Brexit party are a one issue party. As UKIP, well, UKIP then at general elections had to produce a manifesto, which is always an enjoyable document to read because they had to have policy and all sorts of things they clearly were making up as they went along. But the Brexit party, unlike even UKIP, just is a one-issue party. It's hard to see in a general election what its manifesto would look like, uh, although Farage is quite skilled, more skilled than his successors in UKIP. So on one account, the Conservative Party bounces back. These these are very artificially low polling numbers. Now it's polling down in the 20s and even in the teens for the European elections. The other point of view is that the last two weeks has trashed the brand. I mean, it it has trashed the Conservative brand. And we're seeing that saying it takes a lifetime to build a brand and a week to destroy it. And this does happen in politics. In first-past-the-post two-party politics, it rarely actually kills the party. But it can do a decade plus of damage. So I want to ask Helen this and then others. Among the many things that Helen knows about is that she's an expert on what happened when Britain left the ERM, which trashed the Conservative brand for a decade plus. And this seems to me on a scale way beyond that. And the particular difficulty for the Conservative Party is Theresa May's continued statement that we would leave on a particular date, and we didn't. So this polling, it could be one of two things. It could be artificial and it reflects where we are for the next few weeks and a a one-issue party is kind of emerged and will fade away. Or it could be the sign that the Conservative brand is now in decade or decades-long trouble. There's something that's similar and there's something that's different about what happened um, in 1992 is is that what you have seen in 1992 is, is that very suddenly the Conservatives' reputation for governing competence, economic management, regardless of whether there was a deserved reputation or not, just was destroyed, literally, you know, on, on a day. And Even I, though leaving the ERM in the end, yeah. the next five years were boom time for Absolutely. the economy. Absolutely. The record of the economy under the Conservatives in power was better for the fourth term of the Conservatives in the end than it was under any of the previous three in terms of growth and employment. But the crucial thing and I think this it was symbolized by the fact that you know in one day in the recession where you had already got lots of households in negative equity is interest rates went up five percent in a day now they came down at the end of the day but that didn't really matter <laughs> that thing had happened to defend this commitment that um, the conservative government had made to be in a European monetary system and that completely changed opinion the balance of opinion in the parliamentary conservative party because after all you know not that long before in 1990 Mrs. Thatcher had been removed from office in a party coup essentially because she was too Eurosceptic 
And then you had after Black Wednesday, you had John Major having to use a vote of confidence simply to get a paving motion on Mar Street ratification back into the House of Commons. So you had its reputation for economic management destroyed, and then you had parliamentary siege warfare within the Conservative Party about ratifying the Maastricht Treaty. So you had an extremely internally divided party and a party that didn't look like it could govern any longer where the economy was concerned and that had hurt via a high interest rate policy that in part the RM had made necessary, but not only the RM had made um, necessary, the interests of significant numbers of its voting coalition. I think the difference, though is that the Labour Party, quite quickly, particularly once Tony Blair became leader in 1994, moved to a party that the Conservatives didn't have to particularly fear being in office. If you think of like, like what is the historic purpose of the Conservative Party, it is, in some sense, to contain the threat, at least in the 20th century, that it sees the Labour Party posing in terms of radical change. The threat of socialism. Yeah. Tony Blair did not represent that. So there was no kind of disciplining force that would have made the Conservatives come back together again. And at the same time, the conflict over the EU was contained within the Conservative Party, and it didn't have a party to its right that was challenging for those votes. It's absolutely right that the Conservatives' brand is tarnished, but the problem is that the Labour Party is not the the ferocious alternative that threatens the Conservatives. The ferocious electoral alternative, because on other accounts it is the ferocious alternative that the Tories always said we we exist. But just one thing, because in their own mythology, the Conservatives' other role is to clean up the mess that Labour left behind. And you know, it's hugely damaging to the Conservative brand to be the, the mess leavers. Yeah. Lots of things to be said about that not being true, but that's their sense of it. Particularly currency messes, it has to be said. Is this seen in the voting public's mind as a mess comparable to the kind of economic mismanagement? Because this is constitutional mismanagement. This is what this is. It's political mismanagement. It's constitutional mismanagement. It's not yet, is it, economic mismanagement? Well, it is, but it's at a low level. It's not being noticed. But, you know, just remember what's happening to these car plants. Remember what's happening to businesses, small, medium-sized businesses, which are leaving. And, of course, at the moment, they're not getting the, the attention, but cumulatively, it's making a big a big difference. But, of course, what's worth bearing in mind, which we know extremely well, is that those who are fighting over Maastricht are the ones who are at the forefront of, of the Leave campaign at the moment. I think the impact on the Conservative Party depends entirely on whether Brexit happens. If it doesn't, then I think the ramifications will be enormous, not least for the Conservative Party, but also for the British political system as a whole. But if it does happen, then it'll have taken a while and it'll have been messy, but it'll be part of the the past and parties move on and begin to debate and discuss uh, other issues. And just to be clear, you don't think that if it happens now, it will nonetheless be happening after a set of statements were made which were not just commitments, but they were kind of absolutely like for Theresa May. I mean, so she'll be gone, but Theresa May, this is, you know, we stand or fall by this. We will do it in the time. And they couldn't. So the incompetence, it's not on a sort of comparable ERM scale, but it's just this party just can't do it. It can't do the things it says it will do. So yeah, Brexit does happen and this party somehow presides over it. But it failed to deliver on the things it said it stood or died by. But no party could have delivered in the time sure, scale. No. Cause it, I mean, the, the scale of the enterprise brands is so are some, vast. But brands are sometimes trashed for reasons that no one could control, but the brand is done. So, so, so I think the incompetence is on the scale, actually, of, of ERM, because 
it's not because of the Conservatives' fault necessarily for the reasons that you know that Catherine said there was a you know a, a complete structural problem at work in terms of a state leaving the European Union. But even within those constraints, it has all gone horribly, horribly wrong for Theresa May. And also, you would think that a government would be aware of those constraints, and so would be warier than this government of saying things that couldn't happen would happen. That's where how you trash the brand. But there's a history of this. I mean, remember also the commitments about getting immigration down to the tens of thousands, a commitment that it was quite clear they were never going to be able to deliver. And yet Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, and David Cameron too, when he was Prime Minister, kept pushing. They don't learn from that. And of course, yes, 29th of March became totemic, and then, of course, it wasn't delivered. But where I think one of Theresa May's greatest failings has been her total failure to explain to the public just how complicated any of these issues are and just how difficult it was to deliver. Two years is absolutely pie in the sky to try and deliver something as the the complexity of Brexit. If you'd like to catch up on some of our past Brexit episodes with Catherine among others, it's all on our searchable website. You can find the old episodes there. We'll also post a link to the one I did about the voting age because that really matters for these elections too. Democracy for Young People all at talkingpoliticspodcast.com. Next week, we're going to be talking about President Bernie, question mark, and socialism in America. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. And we're going to try and work out what they might mean. That was what, what they might say, you know, what... What that might mean? Yeah. Yeah.